Usually, we take it for granted that women have things far worse off than men when it comes to sexism and gender discrimination. But how is it that we actually know? And does society do a good job of triaging the various problems suffered by women and those problems suffered by men? In this conversation, I speak with Professor of Economics, Brian Kaplan from George Mason University. Brian uses a range of tools and techniques from economics to analyze important social issues from a quantitative standpoint. We discuss whether the status of women as a victim class still remains compatible with an evidence-based approach to building fairer, more empathetic, and more egalitarian societies. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast. I understand that today's topic is fairly controversial, but that just means that it deserves sober consideration if we really want to make the world a better place. If you feel that I've missed the mark, then please let me know in the comments below. You can also find out more information about my sponsors, and about Brian's books and research in the description below. If you enjoy this content, then please consider subscribing, liking, and sharing. And now, I'm pleased to bring you Brian Kaplan. I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens. Brian Kaplan, welcome on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Shane. <laughs> I've been really looking forward to this. Me too. Uh, so, <laughs> look, I, 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 I want to give you the sort of the goal and the, the outline of where I want to go uh, today. So, you know, I want to take a critical look at the way that our society understands gender. Okay. And to, to frame the discussion, in the last three months or so, you know, we've, we've seen the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. And then right now in Iran, there are these massive anti-hijab protests after this uh, young lady was killed by the morality police for not wearing her, her head covering. So, so those are issues that sort of impact women and, and they're heavily talked about in the media. But at the same time, right now we have the war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. right? And, and so men are being prevented from leaving the country and Russia has just begun conscripting hundreds of thousands of men to go and fight and die potentially in a war that they don't necessarily believe in. Right. So, so these issues are very different. Like the details of these issues are very different in nature. But the thing that I'm interested in is how the media portrays them. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the women's issues really are, and, and rightly so, discussed as women's issues. Whereas 100, you know, hundreds of thousands of men being pressured or conscripted into military servitude or military slavery although it's spoken about a lot, it's really not framed in the same sort of language. And so uh, just to point out where I want to take this conversation, I want to understand why. Uh, so, so that's the goal. But I, I thought I'd bring it back and start at a sort of much more locally uh, with a question that should sort of highlight a bit of your personality. And, and that is, what do you think an equal society would look like? You know, what's the target we should actually aim for? Hmm. I mean, I would say that I would focus more on things being just rather than equal. I mean, the problem is that it's quite is that it's quite possible that uh, people can be treated fairly and yet the outcomes are unequal because their motivation is different or their talent is different. I have not been treated unfairly by the Olympic Committee, even though I have zero prizes, which is less than the human average. The reason is not because they've in any way treated me unfairly. The reason is I never even tried to be an athlete. Also, probably if I tried super hard, I wouldn't have been any good. So I would have been better than I am, but still uh, really subpar. So, you know, I'd say that 
it's much more reasonable to focus on whether people are being treated justly than just measuring the equality of outcomes because it could be that equal out, uh, equal outcomes reflect unfairness for example or it could go the other way it could be that we've got uh, unequal outcomes which nevertheless would be even more unequal if people were treated fairly hmm. But but so why did you decide to focus? So your background is in economics. Why did mm -hmm. you get interested uh, in particular in gender? And, and why did you decide to write a book on feminism? Right. I'd say that I began thinking about this about 10 years ago when my daughter was born. I am an economist, but I'm not the kind of economist who just looks at interest rates or something like that. I'm the kind of person that thinks about economics as a framework for thinking about the world. And mm -hmm. also I'm someone who reads very widely in economics and in social science generally. Uh, so once I had a daughter, I think, well, what do I tell her about feminism? Demographically, she's super likely to be a feminist. Right? So coming out, you know, being raised in a highly educated family, father's professor. And yet I've had a lot of criticisms in my head about feminism and mistakes that feminists make. So in my head, really, I've been writing this essay for about 10 years. And I finally decided I would put pen to paper. Um, I mean, it's really one where I just started off by asking myself, well, so what is a reasonable definition of feminism? If you go to most dictionaries now, they will just say it's just the view that women and men should be treated equally in terms of you know, so, you know, economics, politics, uh, social outcomes. But I was aware of a big survey where they actually asked people their views on this. They said, are you a feminist or not? Do you believe that uh, people that people should be treated equally regardless of gender or not? And uh, guess what? So obviously, almost all feminists believes that believe that uh, well, men and women should be treated equally, but almost all non-feminists believe exactly the same thing. So I said so that doesn't really make sense of it as a definition. Saying that feminism is the view that men, men and women should be treated equally, it's like saying feminism is the view that the sky is blue. Yeah, I mean, I believe feminists accept the blueness of the sky, but guess what? Non-feminists accept the blueness of the sky too. Uh, so then I was thinking, well, what would be a more reasonable definition, one that actually distinguishes feminists from non-feminists? And that is the foundation of that essay. This is a much more reasonable definition of feminism. It's the view that our society treats men more fairly than women. The view that our society treats men more fairly than women. And this is where I thought that I had value added as an economist, and economics gives us useful advice and a useful framework for thinking about this. Because, yes, there's a standard list of ways that people think that our society treats men more fairly than women. Um, of course, there's also a much less discussed list of ways that our society plausibly treats women more fairly than men, in terms of conscription, for example. But then what economics has to say is, well, just because there's inequality doesn't mean anyone is treated unfairly. Maybe it is based upon differences in performance. Maybe the reason why men are making more money than women is because they're a lot more likely to do STEM. And STEM is simply a much more productive set of skills for a human being to learn that allows them to contribute a lot more. STEM people just do amazing things that non-STEM people tend to say, oh my God, I can't see how I could ever do that kind of thing. Uh, so anyway, uh, that was where I started out was with this definition, with this framework just trying to make a list of all of the alleged what kinds of unfairness that are gender-based and then tried going through the evidence that exists on whether that's so and that's really where this essay goes if we just look at your uh, definition you know usually when i think of feminists i or feminism i usually think of sort of a broad political movement and mm -hmm. so i usually think of you know people who are progressive or mm -hmm. um, people who are politically active and so on 
and, and the actual so the the initial or the the tr the typical definition doesn't really touch on that either. Right. That's but, true. But where, where does 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 your definition leave room for this, or where does it fall? Uh, I mean, I would say that I would just add it on as you know, a feminist activist versus just someone who believes in feminism. You know, in the same way a person could be a Christian, but not really do much about it. They don't proselytize. They don't talk about it to other people. Or you could be a Christian missionary, right? That's the kind of person who believes it. And they also do a lot of other stuff. I would think about feminism in exactly the same way. Hmm. Do you think it's fair to single out feminism for sidelining men's issues or a men's issue or is this sort of a more general phenomenon mm -hmm. that it goes deeper than feminism and so it's sort mm -hmm. of off to the side it's it's just a societal uh aspect right that's a great question i mean i would say that there is a lot of evidence that just humans humans in general just care more about female well-being and especially female suffering the idea of women and children first that seems to be about as ancient as almost any norm could be Right? If you go and read ancient texts, normally it's like kill all the men, all right, and then take the female, take the women prisoner. It doesn't sound too good for them, but at least they're not getting massacred. Uh, this is a way that we think about it. You know, like how do you know if a conqueror is especially awful if they kill women, right? I'm just thinking about Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars episode episode two saying, "And I killed the women and the children." <laughs> Right, so this is a norm that also clearly existed a you know, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, you know, not really. <laughs> it's just written by someone in the uh, early 2000s. But nevertheless, I think it's a, it's a pretty universal norm. Even when you read about societies who think of as very oppressive of women in the Middle East, when you actually read what they have to say, generally they will frame it as we're trying to protect women from abuse. Like we, we're, we're trying to make sure that women wear modest clothing so that they are not mistreated by men right well this is a matter of their welfare and yeah i think that they are sincerely very touchy about the idea that they're oppressing women what do you mean we are standing up and, and for, for women so i would say this is a very normal human idea it's something that at least don't i don't know of any societies that don't have these kinds of pro-female norms especially <coughs> being about female suffering i would say that feminism has made the issue harder to discuss because mm -hmm. it's one where they are so forthright in going talking about all the ways that women are mistreated and also uh, so notoriously touchy about it that it makes it especially hard to say well wait a second what about men and don't aren't there some ways in which they're mistreated so i think that it is basically a philosophy that amplifies a normal human tendency to just not care very much about male suffering and male well-being but so it's not like without them, there'd be no problem. But hmm. I think it has made it just harder to have a reasonable discussion about it because as soon as you bring it up, then you are liable to get your head bitten off. Right. I mean, I, I guess in the news, you do often hear, uh, you know, a report where it says such and such, you know, 100 people killed, including two women. Yes. Um, <laughs> this yeah. sort of thing. And yeah. so that, that's not so unusual in our, in our society. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, as far, I, I think that kind of thing was very common long before feminism was a major movement. That's really just tapping into something very basic in human psychology. Um, again, of course, you could say it's just 100% of all human societies talk this way and socialize people this way. When it's that extreme, it's like hmm, probably there's something deeper than just socialization going on. Hmm. 
to give some pushback though mm-hmm. you know women, oh yeah there's pushback we, well <laughs> I, you know women can't know what men don't say right mm-hmm. and men are pretty guarded about the mm-hmm. issues they, they suffer and at the same time most of men's issues aren't related to feminism. You know, you know, in Russia, it's not pussy riot that's sending men in, you know, into Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing I'm curious about is just to reiterate, so why was your, your book's titled uh, Don't Be a Feminist, mm-hmm. according to your definition, which I, I would say means don't believe that the world is unjust specifically in the direction or specifically our society. So like later in the later in the book, I said, well, what about other times? What about other countries? And it's complicated mm-hmm. but but so my question would be you know why why was it important to say to your daughter for example don't be a feminist rather than uh, you know you could have said to your sons um you know speak about your your issues speak you know what why was the question framed in this direction mm-hmm. yeah that's uh, another really good question you know i would say that uh, you know like i mean I, in the essay i do discuss it it's one where I was thinking, well, so like, what could, what letter could I write to my daughter that I think would do her the most good? Where not only is it something that is good to know, but also she's just probably not going to hear it from anyone other than me. And that was one where I said, yeah, so probably saying don't be a feminist is something that if, you know, if I don't tell her, it's just going to happen just by the natural course of things. In terms of why I didn't write a similar essay to my sons, yeah, that's that's a fair, fair point. I mean, partly I'd say, well, just read the same thing that I wrote for your sister. Um, I mean, I think that I was just a, a lot less concerned that, that this would be something that would take over their lives one way or the other. Um, now, again, it is, is fair to say, well, you know, what about just speaking more openly? In the book, I cite very favorably a book called Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say by a writer named Warren Farrell. Um, and you know, a lot of the book is, you know, is saying, well, you know, the problem is that men don't go and talk about their feelings. Uh, but on the other hand, he also says that women often make it very hard for men to talk about their feelings. So if, for example, a man, as soon as a man says, well, I feel like I'm being mistreated here, if the response of the woman is to say, well, I feel that I'm not being treated, treated well here, that's a reason just to shut up. It's like, well, if any time I complain about a situation, the immediate effect is there's a retaliatory complaint, then it seems like talking about my feelings is not an effective way to improve my life. Uh, whereas uh, for women, it is generally not the feeling that as soon as you complain, you're just going to meet a counter complaint. More likely you are going to hear a guy say, oh, I had no idea. What can I do? Uh, something more like that. I suppose uh, one way in which I have sort of a feeling that might go in d- the direction of what you're saying is, you know, there's this narrative that, um, you know, what are the bad things? The, the, there's the patriarchy, there's man spreading mansplaining and so on like the, the all, all of these things and then uh who are the good guys or who are the people who are the saviors the, the good the guys wow you've, you've I've, really I've stepped into that putting your mouth but, right there <laughs> but my but but my point is that the the good side uh is the women's rights movement feminists uh you know the future is female and, and this sort of thing so you know it this language doesn't really fill you with confidence that the movement facilitates uh, empathy towards men's issues. Um, right. So, so I, I can sort of understand that point. But at the same time, you, you know, these these elements that are toxic sounding, how do you know? Because you and I are we're in a bubble, right? We're in this academic 
bubble. And so how do you know that this isn't like a fringe element and, you know, because most people I speak to are quite reasonable uh, one on one. So how do you know it's it's sort of foundational and built into the movement? Hmm. I mean, that's, that's a really good question again. I mean, I would say that where you see the really strong evidence of just indifference to men's welfare is in, at the level of the feminist intellectual. So when when there's writing or speaking, that's where you can read it and it's almost as if men's suffering is invisible. Uh, you know, I will agree that if you go and just talk to a random person who says I'm a feminist, then I agree it is a much more reasonable conversation. The real issue I would say is that the reasonable voice just has almost no public almost no public presence and but furthermore it is true that we think of it as the feminist elite so the feminist intellectuals who go and write the books and the articles and speak for, or at least present themselves as speak for women you know they do do it to get a lot of deference from the rank and file feminist so yes like i say in the piece i think that probably the typical feminist is just a nice person that doesn't like seeing women being mistreated uh but if that nice person is highly deferential to a fanatic who is not open to reason argument, then that is a broader problem. Hmm. So, so you, so if I understand you correctly, the reason why you, you went down this, this path is because you're more worried about your mm -hmm. sons and their future not because you care about them more, but because of the environment. You're, you're more worried about your sons growing up in the current environment than you are your daughter worrying? Uh, no, I mean, I mean you know, like really it comes down to I'm much more worried about my daughter getting brainwashed by a worldview that I think is deeply wrong. I'm not so worried about my sons getting brainwashed on this issue. So, so what's the impact then if your hypothesis is correct? On your daughter? Well, yes, well, so if I'm correct and I wrote effectively, I think I did, uh, then I think I am saving my daughter from, you know, first of all, you know, a lot of self-pity, which I think is unjustified, right? I don't want her to feel sorry for herself. I want her to feel confident and like the, like things and, and just to accept, well, I've got a really good situation here. I've got a lot of good opportunities. I should make the most of them. I think that I'm saving her from antipathy. Right? So I think that the feminist movement does cultivate just a lot of antipathy towards men in general and also just looking for harm and bad intentions where none probably exists to misinterpret misunderstandings as deliberate wrongdoing. And then the last thing that I say is I'm trying to save her from being unjust to other people, especially men. It's pointing out, look, you know, you've got three great brothers who have always been really good to you. You've got a dad who's been really good to you. Like, I don't want you thinking about us as being part of some plot to go and keep women down. That is just not the way that it is. And I don't want you just to go and look at men in general this way. I want you to have a, a positive, a positive starting point of thinking that when I deal with anyone, regardless of gender, probably there's something that's good that's going to happen. Um, doesn't mean that it will always go good, but you know, a presumption in favor of other people's good intentions, rather than looking for the worst in other people. So I think these are three toxic things that I want her to avoid. And again, of course, you know, like she's her own person. I can't actually, you know, I can't, can I, can I in no way guarantee or vouch that she's going to have these views. Uh, but I do think I have a lot of credibility in her eyes because uh, like I said, like, you know, I have really worked as a parent towards just never lying to children. Sometimes they ask a question, I'll say, I'll tell you when you're older, but I just don't sugarcoat things. And I'm, I will say that in my home, 
you know, my word is really gold because if I say, look, I'll, you know, will, will I like to eat this? And I said, well, um, I like it, but you probably wouldn't. Like, that's the way that I talk to my kids. I don't just say, oh, yeah, this is great asparagus. You're going to love it. And uh, so I built up a really strong reputation for just for, for candor. Uh, mm. So I think that that will be effective here. But again, I could be wrong. If if it's so if, if there are genuine issues that um, men sort of suffer from that are, let's say, on the same level as those mm -hmm. that are women suffer from, whatever your metric is, mm -hmm. uh, that's something I guess we'll have to talk about. Why is it that women are so passionate about these issues whereas men seem to be at least about their own issues rather blasé you know is it is it um just the historical story that we have we came from a place where women were under the thumb a little bit more than men or what what was what, what's your feeling there i mean part of it as i say this human universal of just caring more about female suffering it's not just the women care more about female suffering men care more about female suffering so that is something where, given that you feel that way, uh, you like, even men are going to be more concerned about women's suffering than their own. Now, but that I think that's only the beginning. I think the another truth is almost everyone cares more about their own suffering than of others. It doesn't matter who you are. So a lot of this, you know, a lot of this is verbal. Where when you hear about something, oh my God, that's horrible. This doesn't mean that men care more about a woman they never heard of losing a hand than if they lose a hand. Of course, you care more about your own hand. This is basic Adam Smith about what human beings are like. Yeah, well, you know, like human beings are very focused on their own well-being, right? And it's not like when I talk to men, I notice that the main thing they're worried about is female suffering. They aren't. You know, the main thing almost all human beings are worried about is themselves. People are people are selfish, uh, but I think another thing that's going on is strategic. It's the sense of, well, what happens if, as a man if I go and talk about my problems to others, right? And mm -hmm. normal answer is you make your problems worse, right? I mean, especially if men complain to women, then they just look weak and they're not likely to get a lot of sympathy. It's like, well, that guy is a loser. He's kind of pathetic, right? And men complain to other men. Uh, you're somewhat more likely they'll get some support, but again, more likely, oh, ha ha, you're a, you're a loser. And some you know, men are not very kind to men overall when men talk about their problems. You know, best situation we're talking about your problems as a man is just to find one other guy to talk to about them, not a group. Complain to a group, and really, you are lowering your status and make yourself making yourself look weak. Um, you know, generally pretty different for women. You complain about your problems, and you get and you can expect to get sympathy. Man complains about his problem, you can expect to get. Uh, contempt is too strong, but expect to get at least like, oh, well, brother, here's a guy feeling sorry for himself. What a loser. Hmm. I, I guess, in at least in the traditional story, young young boys are told you shouldn't cry. Yes. Uh, and so you're and being also never hit, And also never hit girls. And like, well, what if she kicked me? Never hit girls. So it's, it's sort of like a, it's a conditioning from yeah. a young age mm -hmm. not to, yeah. to, to put other people before yourself, perhaps. Uh, right. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, especially meaning you think about this as putting other people before yourself, you'd also think of it as protecting your honor so that your status is not reduced. But the, you know, there, there's, of... there's a more general issue of why is it that kids care so much about what kids think about them? Don't they understand that in the what they're, they're going to grow up and eventually the opinions of these children will be of almost no importance whatsoever? And mm -hmm. the usual Darwinian answer is 
That's not how it was when human beings evolved. When you're a little kid in a primitive tribe, these are the people that you are going to be living with your whole life probably. So if when you are eight years old, you get a reputation for being unmanly, that might last with you for your entire life. So that's a reason why it, it makes sense in the ancestral environment for kids to be really concerned about the opinions of other kids. It's also a reason why it's worthwhile telling kids, uh, yeah, well, this, you may, this may seem really important. Fortunately for you, it's actually not all that important. But especially if you're immature, it's really hard just to accept the reality that we are no longer in the ancestral environment and things are really different than they used to be. Hmm. So then if you want to be, if you want to put numbers on things, mm -hmm. how do you quantify the differences in fairness between mm -hmm. groups? Does it, is it comparing apples and oranges or does it make sense? Can you actually weigh right. and aggregate and, and, you know, these gaps in practice? Right. So the best example of how we can do this is the pay gap. This is an issue that economists have been studying for 50 years about. It's one where we say, all right, well, obviously there's a difference in average pay between men and women, but what explains it? You can easily set up a simple statistical model where you do things like, well, let's go and statistically compare men and women who have similar numbers of hours of work, for example. We can compare men and women who have similar majors, right? Or technically what you're really doing is you're trying to get an exact match using statistical methods. So this is the kind of thing that economists have been doing for a long time. And for at least the last 30 years, you can get rid of almost all of the pay gap between men and women with just putting in some really obvious control variables like full-time versus part-time, like um, you know, you know, family status, you know, so married, unmarried, children or no children. So you know, like, well, then you go and look and you say, well, child, you know, single childless men and women have very similar incomes. You know, just making that adjustment. And then if we do a few further adjustments for education or what industry you're working in, right? And again, it's not like there are no women working in largely male industries. So that gives us a way of statistically handling this. Uh, probably the best effort to do this with not done by an economist it was again done by that guy Warren Farrell. He has a book called Why Men Earn More, which just goes through 25 different important reasons. Uh, he isn't able to go and do the full statistical model, unfortunately. We just don't have that data. But he does go through a lot of differences between the kinds of work that men and women do, all with the announced intention of helping women to make more money. So this book, Why Men Earn More, it's not about how everything's great and women should stop complaining. It's primarily about how can women go and make more money for themselves. So he says, look, here's 25 tricks you know, to go and get a bet and go and get a higher paying job. Uh, although he also says, once you find out how it is that men are making all this extra money, you might change your mind and decide that you don't want to make that money. Once you find out, ah, I would have to go and switch over to STEM, or I would have to be willing to move to an undesirable part of the country. Right. Or I would have to be in a job where I have to be constantly retooling. Right? Once you learn these things, then you might say, OK, well, now that I understand the trade offs, I know, first of all, I, I just no longer feel resentful because I realize that on average men are making more money because they're putting up with unpleasant working conditions. I think one of his facts is about 90 percent of workplace fatalities are male. Well, that's because men are doing more dangerous work on average. So when you realize that, it's like, huh, well, I don't really want to have a job where I'm in <laughs> a high risk of death. Um, it's also a book where men can read it and say, wow, I actually don't want the money that bad. So, mm. you know, <laughs> but anyway, that is one of the very best established methods of doing the comparison. It's one that's been studied in the most detail. But again, you could do a very similar thing for something like incarceration. 
what fraction of the gender gap in incarceration can be explained by the fact that men just commit a lot more and more serious crime. See, I guess you could also do that for race as well along those lines. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, like, I forget one incredibly controversial topic at a time. But <laughs> yes, exactly. I think actually the methods were originally done for racial discrimination. And then a few years later, people, people said, oh, wait, we could also do it for gender discrimination too. Great, hmm. let's try it. And then I guess you'd have to ask, why does our opinion of the data fall along this direction for racial discrimination, but not in the same direction for the, you know, why, why are so many men there uh, in prison? Yes. Um, and then you can start asking good questions along these lines. But if I take a step back, just back to the gender pay gap, why, why do you think money is, is the most important metric here in the discussion, but is it just because it's sort of tangible? I mean, uh, are the it, other it's 25 not necessarily, I mean, I'll say this is definitely one of the most discussed complaints that feminists mm -hmm. have is that economically they're treated unfairly. Mm -hmm. right? So I think actually I would say that it's likely to be you know, definitely the most common complaint and it might even be over 50% of the complaints is, is that you know, in the economy, women are being treated unfairly. I'm not sure about that, but it seems plausible. Yeah, but you know, like I, you know, then there's a bunch of other ones. Partly, this is also, we just have really good data on this. Mm -hmm. um, furthermore, though, the other reason why this is such an interesting case is that this is an issue that is fairly easy to go and explore and get some solid answers saying that actually there's very, you know, the pay gap is quite small. And yet the complaint continues very loudly. Mm hmm. So but, it's but, one where you say either feminists are just not very curious about the numbers or they seems like they are willing to keep making accusations even after the numbers are very strongly against them. And furthermore, they get away with it, which says, well, huh, how is it that they get away just repeatedly making these false accusations about there being an enormous gender gap? I mean, I think the answer is the climate of fear that they have sown where people are just worried to go and point it out. Let's see, the comedian Bill Burr, was uh, doing a bit about a woman from the WNBA going and reading the riot act to a bunch of people work in the regular NBA and like, how could it possibly be that we're paid so much less? And he was making fun of all the guys they're being yelled at saying, oh, gee, I have no idea. I can't even imagine what's going on. And then Bill Burr, I don't know if you know him, but he's, he's a very funny guy. And he's like, they all knew what the answer was. The answer was there's hardly any people want to go and attend WN, WNBA games. So, yeah, there's like hardly any money there because you hardly have any fans. Duh. <laughs> right. But this is his new special, right? I think he had a follow on point, which was that women don't go to women's games. Yes, yes. It's not just that men aren't, aren't going. It's that women aren't going. Hmm. But, but surely you can. I mean, people do push back on this point, right? They say. So, for instance, you could ask, why is it that the jobs that women are interested in are paid less than those that are dominated by men, uh, for instance? All right. So, again, the obvious story is the, you know, the productivity, right? So, like STEM mean, you know, like if you do STEM, you are able to go and do much more amazing things. So that's a, you know, a big part of it. Or things like mm -hmm. being, able, being willing to work a ton of hours. Gee, why is it the jobs where people work 70 hours a week pay more than ones where people work 35 hours a week? Right. There's no big mystery there about what's going on. Again, if you were to say, well, it's just not fair that workaholics make more money than people who don't work very much. That's where I say, like, that's just such an unreasonably high standard fairness. Um, I mean, if that's what you think, I don't know how to talk you out of it, but it just seems like a crazy high bar. If you're only going to be happy if people that kill themselves on the job make 
the same money as people that barely that just punch in, punch out. And what can one say about that? Well, the, the re so the reason why I bring it up is because since you're an economist, actually, I'm quite curious about this because often there are hidden costs, mm -hmm. right? So, for example, when oh, sure. when we go and we drive our car, we we pay a certain mm -hmm. amount for the the petrol um, because the the cost of the carbon going in the air is is mm -hmm. sort of being uh, future generations can deal with that cost. Uh, let, let's say. Although, of course, you're also paying high taxes on a lot of that petrol, especially if you're you in the UK. No, no, I'm in, in Germany at the moment. I'm oh, Australian. You're German. Okay, well, same, same basic point. I mean, usual economist estimates is that in Europe, the taxes that you're paying are well in excess of any plausible estimates of the negative externalities. But, but sure, let's run with it. <laughs> well, so my, my question is just that it could be the case that we're not, re you know, so we might have an economic model, say, where the traditional jobs that were done by women are not valued within that economic model. So for, for example, just to give you, and I'm curious about, about the response generally. Um, so, so let me give you an example. In, in our society, uh, you know, we have a socialized system where when you're, you're old, you'll get a pension or something along mm -hmm. these lines. And it's the future generations that are going to be paying for that. And who are the future generations? Well, it's the children that people bring into the world. But you don't really have to give birth locally to children. You can just import, uh, you know, you can have immigration that comes and fills that gap. And so it might be the case that we have an economic system that doesn't value the fact that people are having children and putting that work in, and generating value. It's just, it, mm -hmm. it might be that we have an economic system that just undervalues what traditionally women did and that could also be the case for other jobs that women dominate in i guess i guess that's i guess that's the the argument that i i want to understand better if, if you sort of understand i'm guessing you understand it a lot better than me so yeah well so i like i am a big natalist i think that the typical person born is a big net positive all things considered not every single person but on average i think that's true i'm very pro-immigration as well i've got another book called Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. We're, you know, most of it is just trying to convince people that it's good for them to have more kids, but I do have a chapter just talking about all the great things that additional human beings deliver. I mean, in terms of like, you know, the, you know, the feminist issue though, I mean, you know, first thing is that obviously men do a lot of things in order to help bring kids into the world, uh, most obviously supporting their kids. Now there are some men that don't, but you know, like within the typical two-parent family, there's a mom that is putting in more time in childcare, and there's a dad that is putting more time into providing for the child. Um, you know, like like there, there, this is another complaint that is actually fairly easy to get numbers on, which is just the total amount of time that dads and moms are putting into paid and unpaid work. This is one where the average turns out to be really close. Mm -hmm. uh, the main difference is that working moms do a lot more. So working moms, when you add up their childcare plus their paid work, that is well above average. Stay-at-home moms, on the other hand, are way below average and working dads are somewhere in the middle. But again, mm -hmm. this is one, we rarely hear about this as an issue of stay-at-home moms are getting a great deal and working moms are getting a bad deal. Rather, it's more of women are being mistreated, which is just not an accurate way of thinking about the numbers. Let's see, in terms of you know, like, you know, the pension system and so on, you know, like, you know, so that, you know, like, you know, like, I mean, it would be fair to say that since there are you know, some families where you have two working parents, you know, two parents and they're both providing and others where 
the you know, but families of a single you know, single parent families are much more predominantly female. So you might say, well, there's still at least an edge from in there, and that's a totally reasonable point that they are putting they are contributing more. It's just one where if you want to do it right, if you want to avoid confirmation bias, then you've got to say, okay, that's one point. Mm-hmm. What about all the other ones, right? And this is one where pension systems, well, women live way longer than men. Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah, women wind up getting a lot more money out of pension systems due to surviving, uh, due to surviving so much longer. And that's a big gap actually. Um, mm-hmm. And again, this is one where I think it's pretty clear that if um, men on average live seven years longer than women, there'd be a lot of discussion about it right? and a lot of effort made to rectify it. But as it is, there's almost no interest in well, what's going on here? How is it that we can go and get men to have a life expectancy more similar to women? It could be that people are just very hasty to say, well, it must be something biological. There couldn't be anything that's being done by our society for that reason. But I don't think people would be nearly as quick to accept a knee jerk. That's just biology excuse if the numbers went the other way. Can I ask just quickly? Yeah. Uh, of course, this is what this is about. <laughs> That's what we're here uh, for. <laughs> no, so, so when you said you, when people, for example, I think it was Warren Farrell, you said, uh, looked into the gender pay gap and he had these 25 uh, main tricks that women can uh, do to you know, close the gap. Was that taken into account, the fact that women live longer and they draw from the pension scheme longer? Or are those numbers... No, no, no. You know, this is purely in the labor market that he's, at, that he's talking about. There might have been... Yeah, I, he might have talked about investing just a very tiny amount, but no, it's, it, this is just about how can I get a better job? So what I'm asking though is, so if you were to take into account that difference, would that account for whatever it is that remains uh, in the calculation? Let's see. Um, so so we again, like you, you want to go and add on the pensions to the pay and then see whether there's still the same gap or will, um... yeah you know just if because my original question was does it make sense to com- you know it's very different let's look at um, another another topic so for example if if we were going to compare sex trafficking which I imagine is predominantly uh, females suffer from yes. and then I child soldiers which I imagine boys suffer from oh, yeah. like so th- yeah. these two it's very hard to mm-hmm. to to compare them but but here you can you can really put a dollar mm-hmm. um, figure on and say look okay uh, the average woman if you account for everything uh, will earn x percent less let's say there's this this remaining uh, this excess because she's a woman let, let's say but then you can also put a dollar figure on how much she's going to draw out in the future mm-hmm. and then uh, this is the sort of thing where you can actually put a figure on it and be quantitative so i, I was wondering if this has been done hmm. let's see i have gone over the social security estimates of the net payments or basically you know, social, you know, there's official social security administration estimates of the rate of return that different demographics are getting Right. And the usual official story, this is not just some weird eccentric person. This is the government's own story is that almost every group now actually gets a really low rate of return on their social security contributions. The main exception being, uh, let's see, I believe it is actually a, so uh, non-working women who are married to men because essentially they get a survivor benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, of course, the you know, like in principle could go the other way. And if you had a woman who's supporting a non-working man and then he outlived her by seven years, now we've already made the hypothetical so unlikely that it's almost irrelevant. But anyway, so that is one group that actually does get a good rate of return. But, you know, a lot of what's going on is that if this were private insurance, they would be looking into ways to go and 
tailor the premiums to the uh, the premiums to the payoffs. But yeah, when government runs the program, then it's basically done on the basis of what sounds fair to voters and you know, voters being enumerate, but also having this pro-female bias, the idea that there should be a separate lower table of payments for women because they live longer. You know, that's not, not on the agenda at all. Um, yeah, so that one I didn't even mention in the essay, but it's a, it's a really good quantitative point. Again, you know, the important thing is to not to sit around saying, I can think of a bunch of ways that women are getting a really, an, a, an unfairly good deal, but just to say, well, let's be comprehensive, right? And let's keep listing them until we're out. And like anyone, anyone, you know, the, uh, the classic Ben Stein question, Ferris Bueller's day off, you know, like, you know, so we get pretty much the opposite of the way the conversation happens right now, where there's a lot of thinly veiled intimidation to just shut up about ways in which society might be treating men less fairly than women or ways in which apparent unfairness might not be genuine. So, so is, is there a systematic way or do you have some approach to separating uh, behavior and, and choices from genuine oppression more generally, not just in the gender wage yeah. gap, but. Hmm. Well, let's see. I mean, there you know, like, I, I acknowledge that there are people out there who will just say, well, if women don't want to do STEM, then it's society that's unfair for failing to go and teach them about the glory of STEM, that kind of thing. And that's mm-hmm. where I say, like, again, this is raising the bar so high and also just assuming such a strange view of human nature that couldn't possibly be that people just have different preferences. You know, what I say is like everyone grows in a society and what you want is are your genuine preferences. And if someone go, comes back and says, no, 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 like your genuine preferences are only the preferences you would have if you were raised Mormon. It's like, why? Uh, I guess if you convinced me that Mormonism was the one true religion, then I might agree with that. But first, you got to convince me of that before I'm going to say that failing to be raised Mormon means that your preferences are just wrong. Um, so that's where I guess that's where I w- w- would go is saying, look, if, if you have to get all the way back to it's the fault of our society for not going and raising everyone in a gender neutral way. So, you know, like, well, if that's your if that's the bar you're going to raise, then like, there's really just no pleasing a person like that. And again, it's also one where it's like, well, what would even count as having tried hard enough? Are you just going to keep being, keep complaining until we've got an equal outcome? That begs the whole question about what the source is. Mm. And also where, uh, along which axes do you want to yeah. equate along, let's say. Yeah. Uh, so, not, but, uh, so there's another point that uh, people often bring up, which is that it's, it's not just that men and women go into different fields necessarily and it's not just that the pay might be there might be these gaps that's that's not the only argument that people make they also say that for instance there's less representation of women at the top at the top Mm -hmm. levels so is that not some indication that uh, the world is or our society at least is has more control in the hands of men or i mean in terms of you know in terms of do men have more control, then it's sort of trivial. If more men are at the top, then men have more control, you might say. But in terms of, like, is it unfairness that has put so many men at the top? That's one where it's like, well, I can see that could be your starting point. It's you know an interesting question. Uh, that's where I do very strongly point out men also predominate at the bottom of our society. Mm-hmm. They are much more likely to be homeless, to be in prison, suicide, so on. So then if you've if you got some model of, say, there's a patriarchy that's helping men, it's like, well... Why would it go and make men overrepresented at the top and the bottom? 
Hmm. It's hard to understand why patriarchy would do such a thing. It's a weird model of human behavior or of, of the way the people, human beings would respond. Uh, so now I would say, look, there's a pretty obvious story to me about why men predominate the bottom. And that is that men are more likely to have really bad behavior. Men are more really more much more likely to commit murder, for example. Hmm. Um, but once you say that, then at least you got a considerable, could it possibly be that men are at the top because men are more likely to do really amazing things that get them there? For example, could it be that men are just much more likely to put everything else in their life on hold or just say, I'm just going to be a complete workaholic and get to the top that way? Yeah, that's mm. clearly men are much more likely to do that. Um, men are just more likely to be obsessed with any particular subject. Right. And as I say in the essay, while obsession does not guarantee you getting to the top, not being obsessed pretty much guarantees that you won't get to the top. So there was a really neat study of Wikipedia editing where I think, I'm trying to remember the numbers, but something like 90% of all Wikipedia edits are done by men. And I think that it's more like 95% of the most prolific Wikipedia editors are men. This is volunteer labor. Hmm. Right. This is, you know, like, this is, uh, and it's an, pretty much anonymous as well. And yet men are overwhelmingly much more interested in doing this. Sure looks like this is just a case of men are much more likely just to get obsessed with something. And that obsession combined with other valuable traits takes you to the top. Right. And as I, as I tell my daughter, look, I'm not saying that being obsessed is the best kind of life. Right. And like, like I've told all my kids, look, if you want to become an Olympic ice skater, I will not support you in that. I think that's a ridiculous thing to do. I'm not going to get up at four in the morning for the rest of the next 10 years. So you can be an Olympic ice skater. I don't consider it a very valuable thing to do with your life. I would encourage you to go and do something more practical. And it's just an absurd long shot anyway, that I just, I'm not going to go and lift a finger to help you with that. I think it's silly. All right. All right. So uh, you know, that would is what would be required in order to get the top, but you know, like, so what's so great about getting to the top anyway? People at the top have a, you know, they, you know, they give up a lot of other things, which I would consider to be very valuable in order to get something which often I don't even consider that valuable. You know, I can honestly say I would much rather that my that you know, that any one of my kids had four gave me four grandkids and that they became a billionaire with no kids, with no grandkids. Uh, that's those are my priorities. Uh, I, I will stand up for them and say, look, you know, having a billion dollars isn't that great. But uh, on the other hand, from my point of view, giving me no grandkids, that's terrible, super disappointing. So I understand the qualitative picture that you're putting forward, but I, I don't really understand. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you do know the numbers quantitatively, whether it makes sense. So for example, if you, so you're talking about people at the extremes, the people who are most productive and most obsessive. And I suppose you, you, you could paint some distribution and you show how the men's and women's distributions overlap and you have these sort of outliers right at the very end. I sort of understand these sort of arguments, but outliers are necessarily a small part of the population, right? So I, I understand for something like Wikipedia, okay, you, you might have a few obsessed. I don't know what the numbers are there. Yeah. It's so, a lot of people at Wikipedia. I think it's tens of thousands. Okay. So Probably okay, more. There's, there's decent numbers there, but I guess, I guess, the argument I wanted, or the question I have is, are there enough obsessive people just numerically to account for the top level of all these different fields? If you know what I'm saying, because this is not just Wikipedia, but there's, yeah. you know, politics and all the different fields in academia and, and so on. So do the numbers actually line up? Well, what I say is obsessiveness is a personality trait and all personality traits are on a continuum. 
So it's not, it's not a matter of you are obsessive or you're not. It's are you in the top 5% of obsessiveness, top 1% of obsessiveness? I mean, if you were to just go and look at it behaviorally and say, you know, what fraction of men versus women are willing to work 70 hours a week for the next 25 years in order to go and advance their careers? Uh, I don't think that we've got good data on that, but we can, we can just look at the gender shares in those in, in that kind of job and see that it's very heavily tilted towards men. Um, yeah. So again, if we like before we like you, you did want to raise the issue of how come there's so many more men at the very top. And then we are talking mm-hmm. about outliers, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, there's the other story of the people at the top are just super lucky. I didn't. I mean, yeah, which I, I, I am open to, by the way, like I think that Lux probably is underrated in the world. Um, mm-hmm. Although what I'd say is when you're at the very top, probably you've got everything, including luck. You've got incredible talent, incredible dedication, incredible sport for family and incredible luck. And you probably need all of those things in order to get to the top, the, the, the real top top. I mean, mm-hmm. think about all the presidential candidates that have lost <laughs> mm-hmm. and they're like, hey, like I had everything going for me and I still didn't get to become president. How, what happened to me? It's like, yeah, well, there's also some luck. I've also heard the argument that men are more uh, less risk averse, so so yes, they'll yes. take risks, and then yeah. that is right. also something that contributes to them falling out at the the lower end of society. Yeah, so that's that's something that's also in Warren Farrell. So yes, if you're willing to go and take big risks, then you're more likely to end up at the top or the bottom, right? When you when you put it that way, it's like oh. Well, if it puts makes me more likely to be at the top or the bottom, then I'm not really all that interested anymore. I only want to get things that take me to the top without any downside. It's like, yeah, well, there's not so many things like that, actually. Hmm. Another thing that I, I've never really understood about this sort of an argument is, um, you know, if culturally, so if you go to different places all around the world, you'll see that the ratio of women and men is different in all different fields. And so... It, in my mind, that doesn't really gel with the idea that, uh, you know, this these uh, tail ends of the distributions is, is sort of a dominant, th- this effect is sort of a dominant and driving uh, force in, in the, in the, it, it, you also have to assume that society is a meritocracy to a, to a large, I know you mentioned this luck uh, mm-hmm. as well, but do, do you understand uh, how yeah. this can be the case? I mean, I mean, I would say that I think that actually on a lot of the main things people care about, the gender gaps are, are, are known in every country in terms of athletics. If you were to actually have co-ed sports, I don't know of any country where men would not be crushing women in almost every sport. If, it, if it's a matter of science, again, I don't know of any country where if you just come up with a list of major scientific accomplishments, men have not beaten women. Um, maybe if you find a really small country where there's like one famous female scientist and zero famous male scientists, then that would work. In terms of CEOs, again, I think that Almost every country, probably every country, still has a dominance of male CEOs Uh, for politics. There might be some place where women have reached parity or maybe even a bit more in terms of legislatures. But um, so I would say this is pretty reliable. I mean, one case where there was quite a bit more variation, as I discovered, is in suicide rates. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So that was one where, you know, men, you know, so I think I remember correctly, I think. Men have higher suicide rates in every country studied, but they vary a lot. Mm-hmm. I think that there might, I'm trying to, there might be a couple of countries where it actually goes the other way, but overwhelmingly the tendency is for men to have higher rates of suicide. Uh, what's striking is that if you want to go and blame this on, you know, on patriarchy and say, well, patriarchy is, is, uh, is making men feel like unless they are the alpha male, their lives are living. And so patriarchy is really causing that. It's like, huh, well, I mean, we can actually see that 
Some of the countries with really high male to female suicide ratios are ones that are allegedly very gender egalitarian. There's some ones that are clearly very traditional where actually the suicide gap is relatively small. So it just doesn't seem like this simple story is correct, nor does it really seem like the simple story is one that was an honest attempt to grapple the data. It's more like I have a philosophy and I'm just going to tell, speak what the philosophy predicts as if it were a fact. Hmm. I have a question that sort of sits orthogonal to the conversation a little bit. I'm just curious, and you're probably right. the person to ask it of. What was the impact of women entering the workforce just in general in terms of supply and mm. demand? What what happened? Yeah. And did we do it right? Could we have done things better? Mm. I mean, I guess the easy answer is you can always do things better. But in terms of the impact, uh, so I mean, this is a, you know, a great textbook economics problem where if you thought about women the way that most people think about immigrants, then you would have a very simple-minded view of, well, clearly it was good for women, but bad for men, drove down men's wages, it's and for men it was really, uh, for men it was terrible, and there's just really nothing good to say about it. Uh, again, uh, since I've got a book on the economics of immigration, you might guess that's not the way I see things, um, and nor is it, I think, the way that almost any economist who really sat down and thought about it would see it, comes down to, look, if there's some people who have you know, who have additional free time because mechanization has reduced the burden of household production, and therefore they want to go and sell it, if you know, if the system makes it possible for them to go sell it, this means that we are getting more output out of the same number of workers, which raises living standards. So uh, you know, like it's not just good for women though, because when women go and work, they increase the amount of output, which means that stuff is cheaper, and men as consumers benefit that way. And the question for whether rising entry of women to the workforce is a net positive for men and what varies for the individual man a lot of it comes down to well did a lot of women enter your exact occupation right in that case you're you, know, you have a lot more competition for what you sell but on the other hand if you don't buy things that women are more likely to produce then you don't gain much as a consumer on the other hand if you are working in an occupation where women generally still are not going in but on the other hand you are consuming a lot of things that women produce then you are a net gainer but the general point is that overall the society gains because the total amount of production has increased. Right mm -hmm. now, in the case of men and women, it's even clearer than normal because so often there are couples where they share income. And mm -hmm. so even if as a man your you know, your wage fell, but if you uh, but if the income of your spouse went up, then you can still easily be having a much higher standard of living than you had before, which you know, I often like to point out uh, the contrast between me and my dad. Right. So, you know, I you know, like when when like when I got my first real job, my wife was making like four times what I was making. And I asked my students, how awesome of a guy would my dad have to have been for him for him to marry a woman back in, in the 1960s who was making four times his salary? Hmm. Like he could have been the most handsome, charming guy in the world. It would still be darn hard for him to get the deal that I got without much effort at all. And the reason is that women were doing a lot better in the labor force. Now, in terms of what's going on overall, again, it's like the story that most people tend to believe is just that um, you know, women were being treated very unfairly, and then there was a feminist movement to raise awareness. They got a bunch of laws passed, which banned discrimination, and that it is because of this that women's success has so increased. But again, this is one where it goes very against the economic data. I think very few economists would sign on to that story. 
the more obvious story is, well, yeah, the first women that are going into the labor force, especially married women with kids, is they're mostly part-time workers. They have not built up a lot of job skills because they weren't planning on doing this, but the economy changed. But then over time, a new generation of women grows up where they're planning on having jobs and they prepare themselves in advance for the jobs they want to have. But also, of course, the kinds of jobs that women want to get change because when the amount of household work goes down, when family size goes down, then it just makes a lot more sense to say, well, I'm going to be focused on my career for my entire life. Whereas in an earlier time, that really would have, would have meant saying, like, I, I just don't want to have kids. And then you know, could have been done in an earlier time, but was just a much bigger sacrifice in the past. Again, I can immediately hear people saying, aha, so you're admitting that society makes women take care of kids. Like, I'm not admitting that. Maybe women have a desire to have kids. And also maybe women who have kids even like are more interested in and having a close relationship with them and being the primary careholder than most dads. And maybe this is something that both both dads and moms actually favor. Maybe you should talk to some people and find out. So one of the things I'm a bit curious about is people paint this picture that you know, 50 years ago, you could have had a working father and a mother who stayed at home. And so you only really needed a single income for the family to survive. And you could have imagined that as women entered the workforce, we had a situation where men ended up working two and a half days a, a week and women work two and a half days a week. And then you both have, you know, half the week off. Or so. you, you could have imagined different... Yeah scenarios but we didn't uh, end yeah, up writing in the 30s john Maynard keynes predicted that in 100 years people would barely work mm. just be a few but, hours of work a week but so why why did we drive in the other direction though why was it that we ended up with so many families where it's really two <laughs> incomes that are being being bought in and and then people have to outsource childcare um to whatever system that whether it's socialized or whether they pay for a nanny or whatever it is i'd say in most cases it's just totally false to say people have to do it Rather, it's that people today don't want to live at the living standard of a family of 1965. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the kinds of homes people are living in in 1965, if you looked at the kinds of food that they ate, how often they went to restaurants, if you just looked at the typical standard of living in 1965, it is not hard to duplicate that standard of living today if that's what you're into. It's mm -hmm. just that hardly anybody today finds that standard of living adequate. People want to have the nice things that that that, uh, that you're able to get with uh, with having a double income, uh, so I think that's part of what's going on. Another part is just to realize that the amount of work that is required to take care of a home has just fallen so much that really it, it would involve just a lot of idleness, which actually turns out people don't like that much. Mm -hmm. This is something that I think a lot of people discovered during COVID. I mean, definitely I did. I mean, I officially still had my job, but to me, you know, going and do and working from home just felt like unemployment. Like I don't see anybody. I don't really go anywhere. I don't interact with people. Right. And the feeling of just meaninglessness and isolation was just terrible. I mean, the mm -hmm. idea that people are only going to work for the money is pretty ridiculous. Like people are going to work for other reasons. They're going to work for the social interaction to feel a sense of purpose. And work does give meaning to people. Um, you know, Tyler Cowen has pointed out that especially for a lot of low-income workers, the job is the best thing they've got going in their lives. It's the one place that they can go where things work in an orderly manner. And so if you are you know, you're a teenager in a family where your parents are drunk and they're having trouble making rent, 
And then like you go and work at McDonald's, McDonald's is probably the place where things make the most sense and where you feel in a sense secure. This is a place where there's a system, things work. Like I know what's going on. I do what I'm told and I get some money and I learn some skills. And so these are all things to be keeping in mind. So I think the main reason Keynes was wrong is that people do not want to have that much leisure. It it becomes a big burden on a lot of people and it gives them a sense of meaninglessness. Although to be clear, what gives people meaning and how people, the way people react varies so much, which again, we learned during COVID, you know, like probably 10% of the people I know said they liked it better. Hmm. And like, I'm like, that's really depressing. And what does it say about our friendship that you're happier when you don't see me anymore? <laughs> and I don't count much for you, doesn't it? Oh, I thought we were really good friends, but it turns out it was all sort of me talking to myself about what a great friendship we had because Apparently, you're perfectly happy never seeing me again. You're Gee. taking it too personally. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what my wife said. And I said, well, how else am I supposed to take it if someone says they're happier when they never see me? Right? <laughs> they probably, you probably had Zoom conversations, at least. You're obviously talking to them in this conversation. Yeah. I mean, like, first of all, just in terms of the substitute, just seem very weak, but also... Like it just doesn't feel the same to me. Hmm. Meaning, and also, there's some people who say, "Yeah, I, I feel I can have just as good as a conversation with someone over Zoom as in real real life." That's not and true. In a way, I kind of just don't believe them. It's like, okay, so if you got married, you would just be perfectly happy living in a separate city with from your spouse the whole rest of your life. You just Zoom at dinner every day, and that'd be cool with you. Um, hmm. No doubt, there's a few people who really are like that, and you just have, like honestly, for me, I just have to face facts and say, "Wow, there's some people who are really different from me." And it's kind of scary and it makes me feel like I'm in a Twilight Zone episode. But even so, I guess that's just true. As a natalist, then, let me jump back and ask you, would, are you, then in, would you be, then be in favor of sort of a socialized system where... So, so there's this argument that we should be providing childcare such that women are able to compete at the same, economically and close this, this gap. Um, we're talking about the gender wage gap again. Mm-hmm. Would you be in favor of sort of a socialized system that does it make sense? Is it economically viable? Is, it, does it make sense for the uh, the, na- the level of the state? You know, you get right. more women into yes. the workforce and so on. Right. So I definitely don't think that it makes any sense to say that it is unfair for society to fail to have a socialized system. That's one is like so. It's unfair unless total strangers pay taxes to help you take care of your kid. That's your standard of fairness. That just seems ridiculously high. In terms of whether it's a good idea anyway, despite it not being a matter of fairness, uh, my view is that there's a much better thing to do, which is just to have baby bonuses pay, taken off your taxes. I think this also has the added uh, the, the added benefit of it, especially encourages people to have kids who are. First of all, already earning enough income to take care of their kids and also are going, their kids are statistically likely to become high contributors as well, right? In terms of whether it's a good idea just to go and give socialized care to everyone, uh, I would uh, so my view is no overall, um, like I definitely see the argument for it, right? And it's one where you know, say, well, look, it may, may cost some money, but maybe it will have such a large increase in fertility that it will more than pay for itself. Uh, I'm open to that. And I just think that, you know, this is one where I think it's a very bad idea for government to be involved in such a personal decision. It's, you know, it's, you know, certainly kind of sounds totalitarian say, well, look, these are all our children and we all need to work together to raise them. It's like, hmm, 
No, um, they're, they are, they're, they're the children of their parents. Yeah, my wife grew up in communist Romania, and I still remember the story of where she was taught at school that her real father was the dictator and her real mother was the dictator's wife, and she went home and told her dad, and her dad blew, blew his, flipped his lid, and he says, no, wrong, I'm your dad, your mom's your mom, those people are not your mom and dad. This was in the 70s where you weren't likely to get sent to a slave labor camp just for telling your kid that, but um, yeah, so that's, you know, it, a, you know, a general vision of the world that I think is bad, but uh, again, in terms of what the actual consequences would be, I'm open-minded about that. I mean, you can have a socialized system without having the dear leader, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can. But again, you know, the, dear, the the leader becomes society itself, hmm. right? That you know, that's like, like you know, we're you know, this idea of you know, like you know, the, the, you know like. You know the other children here. They're they're your real brothers and sisters. You know, like everyone. You know, like we're all part of a common family. That I will just say just really creeps me out. <laughs> and it's like, um, you guys are strangers, so let's just keep it at a friendly distance, okay? <laughs> I want to be friends. All we'll, we'll be friends. But the idea that every person in the country is supposed to be like you know, thinking thinking themselves as part of one big national family, uh, no. Out of curiosity, so you said you're you're pro um, having children. You're also pro immigration. Do you know if these numbers are coupled or are they completely decoupled mm. from each other? In the sense yeah. that if there were more, if, if the birth rate of uh, women in society is higher, does that lead to a lower immigration rate, or mm. is it or higher, or, or are they completely decoupled? It's a great question. So there's a couple papers on the question of just letting in more low skilled women affect fertility of native women and the answer there is yes basically if you let in women that are likely to become nannies then this meet those so i actually hold on let's see wait i might be misremembering the study let's see no, I, so no no I, I think i'm actually wrong about that so maybe we should get out so i think what like what the studies that i have in mind actually show is that letting in more you know, more immigrants to work as nannies increases labor force participation of working moms that's not mm -hmm. quite that that is not the same as race the fertility Although I think it is very plausible that having cheap nannies that you would get from having more immigration will raise fertility of native-born women. Um, I, but I don't think I actually do know of any specific study along those lines. What has been done with pretty high quality work, uh, very close to experiments, is what happens if you get a big cash bonus from having a kid? And yeah, it looks like the not only uh, does that work, but the cost of getting someone to have another kid is actually... Uh, quite modest compared to the total expected additional taxes that kid will eventually pay over the lifetime. So it's a good deal. You know, I, I, I'm curious about this question because I have been mulling over an idea and I, maybe I can run it by you. And the mm -hmm. idea goes a little bit, it's something like this, that, you know, people argue that one way to save the environment to reduce carbon is to have less children. Mm -hmm. That's like an argument yeah. that people peddle. Yep. And they, they show some calculation, and of course, uh, how they get the numbers, you can question. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I think the argument often misses is that you still live in, in society and you're still going to benefit from a socialized system in the future. You know, you're going to receive your, pen, uh, your pension, let's say, and someone has to do the work for that. Someone actually has to support you. So in the future, there has to be a body present in society to, to fill that role. Like elder care, you mean? Or what do you have in mind? Elder care or, or 
really any any aspect of a socialized system later on in life. Mm-hmm. And so essentially the society has to grow. It has to it has to fill that spot. And you can either do it through birth rates or you can have immigration. Mm-hmm. And generally Or you can just have really crummy retirement. Or you can have crummy retirements, but that's not what we're doing, right? So so the 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 number that I want to understand is if let's say for example you're in, a, in an Australian, we have a huge carbon footprint per capita, right? If 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 you're not having a child to remove that carbon footprint from having a child, it's it's not necessarily that you're completely removing that child's footprint because you're importing someone from somewhere in the world mm-hmm. where there's on average a lower carbon footprint. If if you see what I'm saying, so the the calculation shouldn't be not having child versus nothing. It should be not having a child versus however I want to word it. It's it's your you know you're still you you still have to account for that that uh, that that bump in carbon expenditure from importing someone to look after you down the line um, and keep the economy rolling over because the system will grow right. I mean, and, it's, it's much more complicated than that. Suppose that you don't have a kid and then you spend all the extra money on jet setting. Right. right. So, so, so that's, a, so that's I mean, another that, thing. You know, like, so, you know, but you know, still, I would say that, you know, like you know, the real argument against this is just, look, human beings make carbon. They also do a lot of other stuff, right? Uh, if you look at a human being and say, well, it would be better if he was just dead because he's going to make carbon. I think that is a extreme overreaction to the problem. Uh, it's one where... If you were to say, look, it is, it, it is a downside. We should think about ways of dealing with the downside. That's a different matter. Uh, there's this. There's a whole field called environmental economics where they focus on trying to find low-cost ways of dealing with all kinds of pollution. The usual answer is don't go and try to reduce the number of people. Don't go and pass a phone book of regulations. Just impose a tax upon the kinds of pollution that people are making that is comparable to the harm. And then not only does this give people an incentive to cut back on the exact problem that they are contributing to, it also gives the whole business world a reason to innovate to figure out a way of giving the good stuff without the bad stuff. Hmm. Um, like for example, uh, nuclear power, where we could go and get an enormous amount of cheap energy without having any carbon emissions. That would be a nice, uh, something that governments have largely killed off, but nevertheless. Hmm. So anyway, I would just say that I mean, the real the real issue is just you know having a one-sided focus upon one bad thing that human beings doing or the human beings do rather than saying let's go and make a list of all the good and all the bad and you know, of course someone might say well look i think it would just be better if half of humanity just suddenly died um right and, right and because i'm so worried about global warming it's like all right well gee i mean i don't know uh, <laughs> why do you think that it seems pretty extreme if that isn't your view though then again it comes down to all right so you admit that there's a bunch of good things about humans too why don't we just go and narrowly tailor a solution to the specific complaint instead of coming at it with a meat axe which is really what amounts to there's see you know the old saying you know don't use a sword to kill a mosquito i think that is the right way of thinking about it well I, it's just you know i so I, I think I would tend to agree with you, but it, it, I'm still curious just about because people do these calculations and they pull out numbers and the calculations just on the face of it have always seemed a little bit off to me. Uh, yeah, what's accounted that, that, for. That's, that's, that's quite likely. So, right. so, so I mean, again, you know, like, like, but I think that people who are into this stuff 
actually believe is we'll just have robots to take care of our elderly by that point. And I mean, I definitely know, especially among anti-immigration people, one of their favorite arguments is letting in immigrants hurts technological progress, because if we didn't have the immigrants, then we would try harder to come up with robotic replacements for humans in more areas. Right. And, you know, my answer to them is always, okay, well, that's probably true, but there's one thing you're forgetting. There's a limit to how much innovation we can do. And it doesn't make sense to try to innovate really hard to go and replace something that's already abundantly available and cheap. We should go and focus our mental energy on innovations where we are not able to go and do it easily. So much better to focus on doing something that no human being can do right now, like live for 200 years than it is to focus on replacing immigrants with robots. Because look, why try so hard when we've got a good system already? Basically, you want to innovate for problems where the, what we our current remedy is, is not really adequate, um, hmm. like for death, which are we're really totally dropping the ball on death. Uh. <laughs> hmm. I, I guess another issue, uh, well, actually, no, let's jump back onto the topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stick to the topic, sure. Yeah, well, uh, well let me just say one, one last thing was uh, one of the things that um, always jumped out at me in these calculations is, you know, carbon release today is very different to that same amount of carbon released over a 10 year period. And so when you- when, in, in, what, I mean, in what sense? So I'm not a natural scientist, so I didn't, don't immediately see why. Just, so uh, basically if, if, we, if we took all of our carbon budget for the next 100 years and, and yes. put it tomorrow, that's right. much worse. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> right, if you take okay. that extreme. And, and so it always felt weird to me that when people were calculating the carbon footprint for, you know, having a child, they would add on the entire carbon footprint for the, the child's life to that, you know, your budget for the year. It doesn't, anyway, this is, ah, this okay. is way so, off. Yeah, so, that's, is, that, so they don't, they don't want to just go and average it over your lifetime or whatever. Yeah. I, anyway, it's not like I'm reading papers right. about this. I'm just looking at, you know, uh, okay. articles that people, but if, if we jump back to the, the topic, I have a feeling I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be able to guess your position on this question, but what, what's your view of positive discrimination? Um, you know, do, do you think applying quotas makes sense uh, in situations where there's, uh, where you're interested in the representation of some underrepresented group? Right, so as a matter of government policy where everyone has to do it, I think it's just crazy and terrible. As a matter of if I were just running a, say, a nightclub or something like that, um, in that case, I might actually do it, right? So if I were running a nightclub, I probably would still have ladies' night because supply and demand, that's the way that you go and run a successful business. So I don't have any hard principle against it, um, you know, other than like it should not, you know, definitely should not be required. If I were running a school, I think that I would just do admission by test scores because We've seen the, we've seen what happens when you don't do that. I think it's just a really crummy system. It's just so unfair in so many ways, and just causes so much bad blood. It would have been better if it never been done in the first place. So yeah, so you know, Harvard is you know, a private institution. Uh, so you know, in principle, I think they should be able to do what they would do what they want. But if I were there at Harvard, I would say, well, look, you know, what we should do is just admit we've been wrong, and just do admission by test scores alone. And if they said, well, what about like you know. Like whatever you're gonna say next, it's probably gonna sound good, but we know that we're on a slippery slope and I'm here to go and end the slope. So 
if I were to ask you, so we've talked, we've spoken about the gender wage gap and a few other issues, and you, you've mentioned that you know if you actually account for the various factors, uh, this this gap shrinks, for instance. But are there any key issues that people talk about either in terms of how women suffer or how men suffer that you that you think are really genuine and are like what are the actually important yeah. things that we should care about right so on earth i would say the most obvious case or at least the you know like what is probably the largest ones are female infanticide in china and india hmm. right now like the the gender gaps are strangely large it could be selective abortion, and then you have to have an opinion on abortion to decide how what you think about that. But still, like even if a pretty small percentage of that gender gap is infanticide, that's a lot of babies getting murdered. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's probably in terms of expected value. You know, this is an issue some economists have studied. There's been quite a bit of debate. Well, how much of it is really infanticide? How much selective abortion? For a while, there was a theory associated with Emily Oster that was actually due to a certain kind of hepatitis that was artificially skewing it, but I think she recanted on that after a while. But anyway, so that's probably the biggest. In terms of the ones that are most obvious, I'd say it's countries like Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan, right, where, I mean, that's one where we don't have to do really complicated calculations and say, oh, well, what's really going on here? It's one where it's like, it's, you know, until like a couple, until a couple of years ago, it was right on, right on the books, like women in Saudi Arabia can't drive. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and so they actually have changed that law. So I don't know what's really going on uh, there, but at least that law, as far as I understand, that law is no, long, no longer on the books. The general system where an adult woman in Saudi Arabia has to have a guardian, mm-hmm. right? So you know, like, 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 give me a freaking break! You're going to treat a woman like a child for her whole life. Mm-hmm. So um, those are the ones that I would say are really clearest in terms of you say all right well those are easy you're just picking on uh <laughs> on other countries it doesn't but in terms of things that people would talk about in the west um you know one that I, that one that at least i i said like i'm, I'm open-minded on this you know of course there are mutual complaints about objectification so mm-hmm. usual complaint of women is that men look at them as sex objects but there is a corresponding complaint of women look at men as success objects Mm-hmm. Right. And you can say, all right, well, they both have complaints. Both cases, you could say the underlying complaint is, wow, they're so superficial. They don't really care about character. They don't really care about personality. And that's one where I said, well, except success kind of reflects personality to a much greater extent than looks. So you might say that that it really is true that men are being more unfairly superficial than women. So maybe that's something that we can put on their side. Right. On the, you know, on the, on the, on the other side of the ledger, I think it is plausible that men do get more harshly punished than women for the very same crime. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just, it's hard to have the data or, you know, and especially to really understand the severity of what's going on. Um, Warren Farrell at least uh, made me realize that I was probably being way too quick on what's going on with spousal abuse. Where again, mm-hmm. of course we have a standard view that it's just basically just men that are using violence against women Seems like there's a lot of evidence that it's actually fairly equal. And then as soon as I was reading this, all right, fine, but severity, severity is different. And he says, well, it's not even that clear the severity is on average different because women are more likely to use a weapon when they do spousal abuse or more likely to get a man to go and do it for them. And it's like, hmm, well, I mean, I don't really know what to think about this. At least I'm keeping an open mind on that one. Uh, so there's that. And then, you know, obviously, like, you know, like the, the really obvious kind of unfairness to men is when conscription actually matters. You know, I'd say in the mm-hmm. modern U.S., 
legally you have to do it, but it's not really something that many men would ever worry about anymore. Uh, whereas, of course, in Ukraine, then, yeah, like any man between 16 and 60 is kept in the country as a freaking human shield. You know, it's like, like I'm 59 years old. Like, you know, like, like I, I walk with a limp. I can't leave. Hmm. I I guess the reason why we don't think about that is because it doesn't touch most people in there. You know, we're not at, I mean, America's often at war where you are, but uh, at least, I guess you have selective service though. Does that Yeah, yeah. so officially you have to register. There's barely even any enforcement on that anymore. But, you know, it's true that, you know, like no guy has been put into the military against his will for about 45 years or so. Mm. All right, so that's, you know, a long time. Um, you know, and you know, and the longer that it doesn't happen, the less plausible it is that it will ever happen again. But in the case of Ukraine, I, I think it's very likely if you went to Ukraine, you'd have very few people complaining that men are being mistreated in uh, in Ukraine by Ukrainians. I don't think women would be complaining. I think very few men would be complaining. Mm. Um, you know, you can say it's just you know, like you know, so. Oh, you 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 know, you know one, one response would be well, it's just false consciousness. I'm kind of sympathetic to that. But I think a lot of it is that there's probably a lot of men who feel very unfairly treated, who do want to get out, who don't like being separated from their families, but they realize that if they open their mouths and complain, they will get negative sympathy. Not only they won't notice, just they'll get zero, they'll get negative. People say, oh, so you just want Russia to go and, and, and uh, murder all of us. Uh, so you want to abandon your country. You don't care about this country. Uh, you're, you're just like, a, you're, you're weak. You're like, like, you're like, you're just like, like, you're not a man at all. That's the kind of thing that people are worried about, and that's why they don't talk about it, right? Um, because it's like, well, gee, I'm trying to improve my situation by complaining, and if I complain, it turns out that I make my situation worse. I'm still stuck here, but I also am treated like a loser or a coward, and I don't like that. You know, you made me think about um, this might be an area actually where uh, feminists or feminism may have shown empathy towards you know if you look at sweden and places like this i think now they actually have conscription for both men and women right this yeah, so there are a few places that have done this so yeah probably is true that uh you know, i mean it might it might it might be more of declining declining traditionalism than feminism itself uh mm-hmm. that has done it but yeah like like that that very well might be that they have done it indirectly um I mean, so I, I mean, basically, I'll say in the United States, I have pretty much never heard any self-identified feminists go and talk about how it's unfair that men are subject to conscription and they aren't. Uh, of course, there is a lot of complaining about how women might not get equal opportunities for the military. That's very different from <laughs> complaining that women should women should have to register for the draft just like men do. Hmm. But uh, anyway, it's something, right? I, I um, so maybe maybe. In America, you haven't heard, but but it might be the case that I actually don't know the details about the, those societies at all. Yeah, um, I've so, noticed. Uh, for, you know, fortunately, we could Google and find out. Yeah, <laughs> but I I noticed that on your list you didn't have circumcision, right? That that in terms of yes, bodily. Uh, I mean, autonomy. I do have another uh, an essay later in the book on circumcision, but yeah, I mean, you know, like you know, I didn't want to go and do every possible thing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but. Uh, so yes, I, I am opposed to male circumcision. I think it's a, a terrible thing to do to a kid. Like you know, that like I'm, I'm. It's not absolute opposition. If you actually had a really good reason, then it would be a different story. I don't think having a religion is a good good enough reason for doing an unnecessary, medically unnecessary amputation. 
Mm -hmm. right? So if it really were that you could show that this is dramatically reducing your risk of getting HIV and that you are in a high risk group, it's a different matter. Leave it there. You might say, well, couldn't you just leave it into to leave it up to him until he's older and can make up his own mind? Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say I actually did have some guilt when my wife insisted on piercing my daughter's ears. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I mean, so I did actually very aggressively bargain to not have any of my sons get circumcised. And I succeeded there, right? Do, and, do you have any um, cultural ties to Judaism? Well, so you know, my, my dad was ethnically Jewish, but he wasn't religious. But you know, like almost everyone of my generation, I was just par for the course for everyone in America, regardless of religion, to get or every male to get circumcised in those days. Yes. Even when my when my first kids were born, the doctor then said, OK, and when should we schedule the schedule the circumcision for? And I'm like, no, no we're not scheduling that. Oh, oh you're going to have a, have a moil do it. I'm like, no. And he's like, OK, it takes all kinds. Uh, I mean, I, I was strongly tempted to say, are there any other healthy body parts you'd recommend that we amputate? <laughs> but I didn't see any reason to go and <laughs> cause a conflict with the obstetrician in that case. Um, but yeah, but you know, like I was a bit guilty about even letting my wife go and pierce my daughter's ears. It's like, well, shouldn't she just be able to decide that when she's old enough? But so I said, well, hmm. I mean, it's true that teenage girls will pierce their ears themselves at a slumber party, whereas I've never heard about a guy doing a, doing a self-circumcision. <laughs> so probably I'm over. I, I'm just overreacting to this. Uh, you know, and the odds that she'll want it probably really high. So, well, even there, yeah, like, you know, I, I was sort of wondering, am I failing as a father here by not saying no way, a line in the sand, you mm. cannot you know, pierce her ears. She has to wait until she's an adult. I, I suppose functionally as well, that's something if, if you take yeah. out the earring over a couple of years, it'll close yeah. back up. Yeah. And so you're not yeah. doing permanent, a permanent yeah. change necessary to your child. Yeah, yeah but, but still, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where normally you would be considered your duty as a parent to protect your child from, right? Mm -hmm. If there was a stranger coming by and say, hey, I'm just going to put a needle through your kid. Uh, it'll heal. <laughs> right? You would just yeah. say, get a hell away from my kid. <laughs> no way. Back off. <laughs> right? So, so. I mean, you know, that's where, you know, perhaps I'm hyper scrupulous about this, but uh, maybe I should have stood as stronger. So, so what do you think then can be done to help people, you know, to increase the level of empathy that society has for issues that predominantly affect men? So, for example, um, you know, there are more homeless men, you can mm -hmm. talk about men in prisons and so on what what would your approach be and would would you take anything from what feminists have done in the past 50 years i mean honestly i would say the first part is just not to the, not to make the mistake of equating inequality with unfairness so i mean i don't think that it makes a lot of sense to be feel really sorry about all the men in prison for murder they're murderers so you know, like, <laughs> that was a really bad choice they shouldn't have done it uh, but for the residual for the residual, for cases where, like inscription, where it really is just a genuine, blatant unfairness, I mean, what could really be done? And I think honestly, the the big, the first, the really big step is just to stop going and responding negatively to men who raise the issue, hmm. right? Not to get angry at men for doing it, not to go and question their manhood, not to call them cowards, not to sneer at them. Uh, I think that that is a lot of the reason why men don't talk. This is you know, a really good point in, in that Warren Farrell book, uh, Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say, 
where he says, look, men need to get better at, uh, at, at expressing their concerns and women need to get better at listening to men's concerns. Hmm. Right. So, and, and again, and, and so the, the language he uses, you know, this is, you know, very, you know, this is very good languages. You know, so let's see, what was it exactly? Um, you know, just men need to express their complaints so they are easily received and women need to receive men's complaints so they are easily spoken. Hmm. Right? No, um, coming um, full circle, there's something that I find quite heartening, which is that if you look, you know, sort of on this topic, if you look in Russia, for instance, there are women that are going out and protesting for their sons, brothers, fathers, husbands, and so on, uh, because the men can't be seen in public when they're, they're at risk of having, you know, summons papers. And then in in Iran, at the same time, in these hijab protests, uh, there are men, you know, this is one of the most patriarchal countries on the planet, and there are men really marching alongside the women. So, so it's, you know, my, my view is, to a large extent, men and women do support each other. Like, I, I kind of have this positive view of I mean, the Society. fraction of people participating in these protests is negligible. Of I wouldn't course. draw any big implication about anything from it. Uh, you know, again, like, like it's beautiful poetry. It's beautiful <laughs> poetry, right? You know, like one person going and taking a stand, you know, can be a beautiful thing, but it doesn't mean that it shows something deep about human nature or anything like that. Uh, I mean, we'll say, you know, like, you know, one-on-one -on -one people are much more sympathetic to other people normally, right, regardless of gender. So there's something to be said there, but on the other hand, uh, if a person just speaks to a to a larger, you know, either opposite gender or mixed gender group, you can you know, generally expect that men are just not going to get anywhere with their, with complaining about being mistreated. Most likely, just be made fun of, right? Um, women, it's a different story. Hmm. So then, let me let me wrap up then with sort of I want to get an, an idea, sort of where do you think we are in the West? So, so where do you think we stand in, in terms of equality and what direction do you think we should be going from here? What, what would your recommendations be? Right. I mean, in terms of where we are, I think that we have gone way past the point of, you know, what's, what's the right way of putting it? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. so like you know, in, in terms of the, the actual objective fairness, of the treatment, and I think that most men's and most women's complaints are pretty overblown. And there's just a tendency to mistake inequality for unfairness. I do think that there are you know, a few outliers or a few other cases like, like we've talked about. I think the main issue in terms of the unfairness is, first of all, that there are just a lot more false accusations about men mistreating women than the other way around because men almost never make public accusations against women being unfair to them. Uh, so that's one thing is that there's just a, is that there's a great imbalance of the accusations uh, and especially of the unfair and false accusations. And then of course, we also have a legal system that is really based upon these false accusations. So we've got a legal system where the presumption is that if women are doing less well in a job, it's got to be discrimination. Uh, you know, it is true, of course, an employer can, can try to defend himself and say it's not discrimination, it's rather there's a difference in performance, the law does allow that. The problem is that the cultural presumption is that's not the case. And I'd say, look, the cultural presumption really should be precisely that it is the case. 
assumption should be that people are being treated are, are, you know, are being treated fairly by gender unless you got some really strong evidence otherwise and that normally there's a good reason especially in markets where there is such an obvious get rich quick scheme if women are really being treated badly which is fine fire all your men replace them with women and become rich right mm -hmm. this is not a difficult business strategy for someone to follow if it were really true that women are being grossly underpaid on the basis of their productivity in any industry really um, in terms of you know, where we are ideologically, I'd say that feminism is probably at an all-time high now. I think the fear of criticizing feminism is probably close to the maximum that it's ever been. Right? I think that the share of the population that is identifying as feminist is an all-time high. The share of women identifying as feminist is an all-time high. Ten years ago, most women said they were not feminist. And now I think it might be up to something like, maybe it's like 70% of young women, maybe even higher though. And out of influential women, college-educated women, even higher. Uh, in terms of what should be done, I think, you know, the, you know, the main thing to be done is just to, first of all, uh, just you know, calm down. And second of all, let's say, all right, let's just have a, a highly unemotional conversation where we go and think about these issues and without going and getting mad at anyone for speaking their minds, let's just go and try to make a list of all the different complaints that people have and see to what extent they are true today. Uh, that we also, like, we could also talk about whether they are true in the past, but really of course, what's going on today is what's most relevant for today, right? And be ready to go and change our minds, right? So um, I think that if people did this, they would wind up basically agreeing with me and saying that the view that the, the feminist view is just a mistaken view. Feminism is a mistaken doctrine. And then this would mean, first of all, don't become a feminist. And second of all, deconvert if you are and say, I used to be one, but then I realized the doctrine was mistaken. So now I don't adhere to it anymore. Right. Uh, of course, the final thing would be actually changing laws. Although, you know, you know to a large extent, the laws wouldn't even, would, wouldn't even do much damage if people just interpreted them in a reasonable way. But I just think that you know, the very philosophy that led to the laws to saying there's rampant unfairness against women is also one that makes it really hard to defend yourself when you're accused because if the standard view is there's rampant unfairness then what are you going to say if you're accused you're going to say well look i agree there's rampant unfairness i'm just one of those really rare exceptions so i wasn't but yeah almost all those other employers they're terrible most men are terrible but i'm good that you could say that but that really it's hard to go and defend your own innocence if that is the view about the general base rates in the system. Do you think that the, so, so two questions to follow up from that. Do, do you think the guardedness against criticism came from a genuine place as in, you know, those because of the initial pushback and so the sort of this defense mechanism perhaps that was put in place that hasn't been dismantled. So that's the first question. Mm -hmm. And the follow up to that is, what does this actually do to an academic movement if, if, if you can't have criticism? Sorry, I promised you this This was the last question and then I'm... <laughs> oh, I'm having a great time. <laughs> so I mean, the idea is that the reason why feminists are so prone to anger is that early on when they were making very good points, they people dismissed them so much and then they adopted anger as a strategy so that they would get a hearing. Is that the idea? I, I I didn't use anger, but but uh, let's say a yes. guardedness and a defensiveness. Yeah, right. A defensiveness. Um, yeah, I mean it's one where I definitely believe that some people 
had you know that was the reaction so yeah like i've little doubt that you know that you know like early on in the history of feminism there were some women who were said it and then men just laughed in their faces and they didn't like it mm. and then they realized gee if i get really angry they'll stop laughing at me uh, and that's one where like i have enough unconventional views where i just take it for granted when i say something unconventional people are going to be really skeptical and maybe laugh in your face and to me that's just the burden you assume whenever you say anything that's unpopular is like you've got to accept that people will say i've never heard this before that sounds weird maybe i'm going to laugh at you um i could go and bite people's head off for saying i'm against open borders or something like that but i think that's just a very poor you know it's not a good way to treat people and it's also not going to be an effective way of changing people's minds uh, in terms of whether it was ever a reasonable strategy yeah i mean i, I don't think so you know i think the better approach would have been just to uh, you know, to try to show how how calm and reasonable you are and also not to overstate right um now you might say yeah but isn't overstating a good way to get results you know, like sometimes it's also a good way to go and and, uh, and and go from being someone who's mistreated to being someone who is mistreating others uh which is i think what happened uh so so yeah i mean i don't think that there was ever really any good reason for this attitude i think that it is a poor one uh so what is well and, and then then what's the second question again so the actually i forget now what my second question was. it was um it was oh yeah so what is the so i'm, I'm curious about the academic impact and in, oh yes the in, academic in, impact well and and let me let me just add something quick to that which is that is this really something is is criticism i don't know you know of course there's people who talk online and and, and various you know in society outside of academia maybe people are not good with criticism but academically is it also the case and, and if so what's the impact yeah i would say that academic feminism is the center of feminist fanaticism on earth it is the place where the level of anger is the highest the level of self-righteousness and dogmatism is the highest yeah so if you go into a department of women's studies and just start trying to have a polite argument i think you are going to be in severe trouble uh they are just not used to the idea that someone might say that they are mistaken um, you know, if you're lucky, they will go and just give you a big dogmatic lecture, and yeah, you like you very well might be getting yelled at. Uh, I know, I know of a student who actually, like, you know, the, you know, the professor was just so disturbed by just something that was contrary to feminism. The professor said, like, you know, I'm concerned that you might go and commit a crime. It's like, like I'm just writing a paper here. Uh, so that that's an actual recent case. Um, in terms of my firsthand experience, so far zero feminists have actually said anything bad to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going, that's fair disclosure. Um, as the book becomes more prominent, then maybe. I mean, I think right, you know, right now, like either they're ignoring it or they just haven't heard about it because the kinds of people that read my stuff are people that like my other stuff uh, for already obvious reasons. Uh, the uh, level, you know, now the main thing that did happen is I had a lot of friends just saying, this is really dangerous for you to be doing this. This is, uh, you're risking your whole career, your whole future. Uh, you should really rethink this. So that is different from feminists going and saying something bad. It's friends making a prediction about how feminists will react, which so far so good. Maybe my friends were just being paranoid. Um, so, but uh, of course, I, the book's only been out for a couple of weeks, so it's kind of hard to say. Um, but yeah, I would say that you know, like you know, there there is this general category of academic subjects that are sometimes called grievance studies. There, you might have heard of the so-called 2.0 grievance studies. 
hoax where people just wrote a, wrote a, wrote a bunch of fake articles about for fields like you know, women's studies and ethnic studies and so on disability studies fat studies and then they uh, sexuality studies and basically they just wrote some totally dogmatic stuff and they found it pretty easy to publish it right mm -hmm. and the reason is that there are a number of academic disciplines that are not real academic disciplines they are little cults where the only way that you can succeed is by being a true believer in the cult and what they're arguing about is the very mildest if issues at the periphery of the cult right so i i consider women's studies to be one of these cults again obviously does not mean that 100 percent of all people there are are brainwashed cultists but still um you know it is you know, overall it is just not it is a fake academic discipline where you have to be believe in this religion in order to be considered a member of the, uh, in good standing of the discipline i guess the the sort of if, if i was going to play devil's advocate you know if if i was at a you know quantum gravity conference and mm -hmm. someone came off the street and you know argued against whatever theory was being put forward um you know loops or whatever um you know people would say you're a crackpot you're coming off the street so, mm -hmm. so uh, i'm saying this bearing in mind that you just mentioned the circle squared yeah. um <laughs> so, yeah. so, so what makes it why why is it uh different here because i, I mean your background well, there's, is in there's a lot of tests so one yeah. test is can you just write some gibberish that supports the general worldview of the group and publish it in a top journal mm-hmm all right <laughs> all right that's one so and like i don't think that would be true in any major branch of science that you could just write some mm -hmm. gibberish that kind of that sort of looks to a naive person as if it's on board and then get it published because it shows that it's not just a matter of loyalty that you get academic rewards you've got to actually advance the discipline with something original something mm -hmm. where you can back it up with the with the math and the evidence so that's part of what's going on another part honestly is just the demeanor is the reaction that someone disagrees is like, oh, well, can you believe that guy doesn't believe in gravity versus you don't believe in gravity. Well, <laughs> this, what can we, you know, so there's anger versus bemusement. That is another way of looking at it. It's also a matter of if someone is just honestly puzzled, how do you react? Like if a student mm -hmm. comes and says, like, how can we reconcile Newton with Einstein? Like mm -hmm. physicist is not going to get angry at you. Business is going to say, it's a really good question. And you know, the answer is, yeah, actually the answer is Einstein's right and Newton's wrong, but Newton's really close. And that's why it was hard to tell. And now I can walk you through the steps. Whereas if you were to go into a department of women's studies and just say, all right, well, what about all this stuff in economics about going and estimating discrimination or discrimination wage regressions and not finding much of an effect of gender on earnings once we make some obvious, obvious statistical corrections, what do you say about that? And I don't think you're going to get that same kind of an open-minded response. I think if you're lucky, you're going to get a lecture, right? So like a very dogmatic one full of cultish jargon about how even to ask that question just shows that you are accepting the views of the patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. And again, more likely that someone's going to get mad at you, especially if you don't immediately concede, oh my God, I was so wrong. But if you say, well, that doesn't make sense, right? If you start pushing back like that, I mean, again, I think a physicist is is much more likely to go and listen and say, all right, yeah, well, I can see why you think it doesn't make sense, but actually, here's what's really going on. Let me tell you, 
Um, now, again, obviously, there are some ill-tempered physicists who probably would bite your head off. And, there, and there's got to be some really sweet, open-minded professors of women's studies who would love to have a conversation. I just think that these generalizations are highly true. Uh, but, you know, prove me wrong. You should... It, it can get pretty heated sometimes in in uh, physics conferences. Uh, I have seen people yelling at each other, at, <laughs> but it's not a general rule. The, I want to I want to go back to a, a comment you mentioned several questions ago, which was um, you mentioned you know if there was this uh, back to the wage gap again, the free market would. You mentioned that if there really was this gap, then the free market would sort of uh, get ri rid of the gap. So, very so, likely. Very likely. So, so uh, sort of uh, to counter that, like someone might come back to you and say, well, there was a point in history where there was a difference and then we put a law in place. So, mm -hmm. so if that's true, why were things different then? And yeah. why did that argument fall then? Right. So, I mean, I would actually just say I don't think that the law is the uh, is an important reason for male-female earnings conversion. I think the real reason is men and women changed. So in the earlier period, women were much less committed to working full time, much less committed to their career. They trained differently. And over time, the way that women are has changed. And I think that's the main reason why there has been this closing of the gap. I mean, again, and of course, go, you know, even, even deeper roots are things like declining family size and increase in technology for household production, which just meant that it was just uh, finally possible to go and have a married couple taking care of kids without spending much time going and taking care of housework and that kind of thing. So I think that's that's a lot of it. Uh, yeah, so now if you go back even further in history and say like, how do you explain why in medieval farming men are paid so much more than women? There's like, yeah, I think we got a pretty good story about that that doesn't involve discrimination. How about when there's an industry that's almost entirely based upon physical strength and endurance, men obviously are going to do way better than women because they do have a lot more physical strength and endurance. That's why mixed gender sports are not very popular because it would just be, they would turn into virtually all male sports in a real competition. Um, so yeah, so, I mean, I think that it is likely that discrimination law has, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, particularly gender discrimination law, it probably has indirectly caused some women to be overpaid relative to the productivity. Oh, well, again, I think that most often what's really going on is that employers respond to the laws by being more being more careful about hiring someone that's gonna cause legal trouble for them. Uh, so, you know, it can eventually get to be the case the enforcement is so strict that you're more worried about the appearance of trying to avoid getting punished than the actual consequences. In that case, I think we're, we may be getting to there, right? But in general, there's been work by economists saying things like, well, if you go and say that employers have to go and pay for maternity leave, this means that employers become less willing to go and hire women that are demographically likely to have kids soon. And so it actually is not good for women overall to put those in, uh, to put laws like that in. So I'd say that would be my, my, my general view is that probably gender discrimination was always very low in terms of men and women who are equally productive are getting paid different amounts. Uh, rather, it's more of the difference in what men and women were capable of doing on the job changed a lot because the economy changed and people people's priorities changed. Hmm. Do, do you think ultimately, as our technology develops, the difference between the output of men and women will essentially vanish and will end up just through a technological change with a society where there's very little difference in treatment? So 
In the end, no. I think that artificial wombs will make a huge difference. They'll come eventually. But even when a child is gestated in an artificial womb, there's still the issue of who wants to stay and take care of that child. And I do think that for obvious evolutionary reasons, most women have a very strong desire to spend a lot, a lot of time with little kids. So I think that's going to stay even with artificial wombs. I could be wrong on that, but uh, it does seem that this is probably very biologically deeply rooted. It's not just something that our society happens to tell women that, that you should take care of kids. It's rather something that comes deep from deep within. Say so actually one way of, of understanding this is if you just take a look at the kinds of propaganda that both parents and schools and society generally goes and gives to, to girls and young women. And I'd say pretty much 100% of what parents and schools and society tells young, tells young women is it's much it's really important for you to go and get a good job and having kids can come later long much later you can delay that it's fine to delay that well into your 30s or 40s i think that's basically what kids are taught and especially what what uh, girls are taught is it's super important to do well in school so you can get a really great high profile high power job and definitely do not have any kids anytime soon. You know, like you don't want to have kids, definitely not in high school. You don't have kids in college. You want to wait a good long time. So that's most of the propaganda that everybody gets. And yet still we see a continued big gender gap in attitudes towards having kids. So again, probably there is a big biological component. And really this is, you know, yet another case of society is not creating values society is trying to counteract in effect it's trying to is ineffectively try to counteract much more deeply bio biological values and the same thing goes with the ways that schools go and treat little boys and try to basically say well you need to go and sit still and behave and do your and do your work quietly um, and boys are told this a lot more than girls because they have to be told this a lot more than girls because they don't want to do it you're making me wonder whether we're just going to end up with everyone medicated into whatever we think is the correct <laughs> framework to be in. I mean, we're, we're already half there, right? We're already well, half there in terms of the amount of medication that people are using. Again, you could say, well, I mean, it's just people going and using, you know, having better living through chemistry. Um, I'm not totally against that, although I do tend to think that there's just a lot of dehumanization, you know, to go and take a little boy and give him some drugs so he just sits still and does his work quietly. It's like, that's why is that the real him? Why isn't the real him the kid who runs around and has fun? Well, on that terrifying note, no, <laughs> Brian Kaplan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you oh, yeah, so thank much you. for coming along. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. And yeah, so the book is an Amazon exclusive. It is called Don't Be a Feminist, Essays on Genuine Justice. The longest and first essay is what we've been talking about for these two hours. But if you feel like you now understand everything you ever want to know about it, there's about 40 other essays in the book on a wide variety of other topics. Uh, there's a bunch of topics on wokeness, less social justice. There's a bunch of topics on, or a bunch of essays on discrimination. There's stuff, a bunch of essays on the ethics of immigration and war and circumcision. And there's just a last part about living an ethical life in an unethical society. Uh, so anyway, the paperback is twelve bucks, and the ebook is nine ninety nine. Despite record inflation, I've been I've kept the prices at the same level. So uh, don't miss it, or eventually inflation may get so bad I am forced to go and raise the price. Right, anyway, <laughs> so, absolutely fantastic talking to you, Shane. Great pleasure. Really appreciate it. 
And what I'll do is I'll place any links you want me to oh. down the bottom in the description okay. on, on the audio and the, the video uh, on YouTube. So thank you very much for coming on. All right, uh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure.